General Jim Mattis, 40 years in the U.S. Marine Corps. <clears throat> How do you keep improving as a leader to meet the demand of each role in your career? We all get promoted, you have different roles to play. How do you stay teachable as a leader? I think the most important thing here, uh, Joel, is that you have to assume you must keep improving. If you make that your decision, that you must improve, if you look at every week in the Marine Corps as your last week of peace, and you must be better at the end of this week as a warfighter, then you'll push yourself on your three-mile run down to 18 minutes, and you'll accept no excuses. You'll push yourself 21 pull-ups, and you'll accept no excuses. You'll push yourself to read the Commandant's reading list. You'll push yourself that when the things are going tough in the field, you keep your spirit up and you're the man everyone can turn to, knowing that you don't give up. And you just keep improving every day with the assumption that if you're going to lead more Marines in the future as you get promoted, they expect you to be the physically toughest the mentally sharpest and the spiritually just the uh, most undiminished person that nothing, not cold, not rain, not enemy situation, not frustrating rules can get you down. And you just maintain this body, mind and spirit improvement at all times. You stay teachable most by reading books, by reading what other people went through. I can't tell you the number of times I looked down at what was going on on the ground, or I was engaged in a fight somewhere, and I knew within a couple of minutes how I was going to screw up the enemy. And I knew it because I'd done so much reading, I knew what I was going to do, because I'd seen other similar situations in the reading, I knew how they'd been dealt with successfully or unsuccessfully. And so long as you continue along this line, so long as you remember somebody on the other side is watching, hoping that you're not at the top of your game, that you're not reading, that you're not working out, that you're not strong spiritually, then they're going to think they've got you. You want to always be the toughest, the sharpest out there. Hey, so is this your first time uh, being on another podcast? Yeah, actually it is. Yeah, so it's, you know, people have emailed me before asking me to come on their show, but I'm used to kind of, you know, hosting and asking the questions and kind of directing the discussion. So it's probably a little bit of a different experience uh, as you're about to experience. Right. Uh, so what is the name of your podcast uh, for the audience who, you know, they can check it out uh, after they listen to the episode and, and whatnot? It's The Danger Zone, and The Danger Zone is one word. Okay, and you do uh, video versions and audio versions or just audio? Correct. I, I do a uh, video shoot and I upload that to my YouTube channel, which is under my handle, Daniel the Barbarian. And then I upload the audio to SoundCloud and iTunes. You can find it on very others, various other uh, podcast apps that pull from those. Right, and, and podcast has really been growing Um you know, probably 10 plus years ago, really the only way you can listen to radio is through a, a radio show on the actual radio itself. 
But, yep. you know, the emergence of uh, podcasting, it really kind of changed the game a little bit uh, in, in that regard. Yeah. Um, all I know is I really enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a lot it's a lot of fun. And uh, I, you know, it started listening to some podcasts myself and, you know, having really good conversations with people I know. And I'm like, man, why am I not capturing these and sharing them? So. So it kind of led me to start it. Right. And it's you, you hear from people without that kind of corporate um, touch to it, you know, like, you know, certain things have to be a certain way or whatever. You hear from people directly, you know, got, and specifically for this podcast, people get to hear from someone like yourself. Uh, and, and you are a retired uh, Sark. And yep. I've had a Sark on before. But I, I, as far as the SART goes, I don't think too many people are familiar with uh, what it means, what it stands for. Can we just talk about some of that uh, for the audience? Yeah. So uh, SARC is an acronym for a special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman. And so I guess a good spot to start would be to kind of uh, bring people into the history of sort of corpsman in general, because a lot of people, you know, they might not even know what a corpsman is. And so the, you know, since, since the Marine Corps started, they've had the corpsman alongside of them, you know, fighting through World War II. And in the special units within the Marine Corps, they also still need corpsmen. So they've needed kind of corpsmen that are a step above the rest to be able to go along with them. Even with the Marine Raiders, there was uh, back in World War II, there was Raider Corman that went along with them. And that tradition has kind of continued on um, through Marine Reconnaissance. And that's when, you know, when Combatant Diver and Jump and Freefall and all, all these um, all these modes of insert started coming in, you needed the Corman that was going with the recon platoon or, or whoever to have all the same training that the recon Marines had as well. So they could go along, you know, on a jump insert in Vietnam or, you know, with the like. So that's where special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman came in is they actually set up a pipeline of training that kind of mirrored the reconnaissance Marine training. So. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting history. The corpsman, there was a period where I think it was according to the Geneva Conventions, they weren't allowed to carry rifles. Right. Um, so they were just literally just medics, no weapons. And I think that yeah. changed around the Vietnam era, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, or post from my, from my understanding, some of the recon, uh, or sorry, Raider corpsmen back in World War II were carrying like Bowie knives. That was it. <laughs> So and, and that's pretty crazy because they were going on some crazy type of uh, operations and getting into huge uh, fights, you know, and, and being there just with a knife or something like that. It's just crazy. Yeah. And so we uh, we actually set ourselves apart as as Sark. That's kind of where we, I guess, um, branch off from the Geneva Convention or the typical. Um, classification of a corpsman being a non-combatant, um, as Sarks were actually considered combatants. So, okay, that, I see. That's that's interesting. So, 
Well, another kind of interesting fact is even though you are a Sark, you know, you went through your training pipeline and, and you're now working with, uh, Sarks either work with um, Force Recon or Marsoc or Marine Raiders, you are still uh, considered a, a part of the Navy or you, you work for the Navy and you're attached to a Marine unit. Is that how it works? Yes. Yeah, that that is correct. You're, you're still in the Navy. So it's actually kind of a, a unique dynamic. It's there's, there's pros and cons to it. Um, pros would be, you know, you fall under Navy grooming standards, so you don't have to have high and tights like Marines and, mm-hmm. you know, you decide to grow a mustache, you get a little longer. And, um, but yeah, there, there is, there is some disconnect that comes in there. And then, you know, it is such a small community, the SART community. There's only, you know, at any given time, there's usually under 200 of us in the Navy period. So it's, uh, it's, there's some challenges that come with that and right. not being being known up, known about it at the higher levels. So right cuz even though the the capability exists uh the the uh people who are calling the shots and running the show they have to know about it in order to be able to employ it properly like I think it was uh not too long after the towers fell uh, Donald Rumsfeld at the time was a uh, Secretary of Defense he went to um Fort Bragg uh North Carolina and he was, I think he was talking to like a, a commanding officer of, of Delta. And he's, he said something along the lines of, uh, you know, it, it would be awesome if we had a, a, a group of guys who can kind of go into other countries and small units and, and conduct, you know, combat operations successfully. And it just, that, that kind of interaction just kind of highlights how you know, what you're talking about, if if you're kind of hidden in a s- small number of, of people or personnel, uh, perhaps, you know, the higher ups won't even know about you. And, and then that'll kind of affect the way you're employed on the battlefield. If, if you're called up, uh, you know, to do a mission that you're capable of, you know? Yeah. And we're, we're definitely getting some more, um, I guess, coverage and people are starting to kind of get that Sarks are out there. You know, maybe not everybody, but it's it's definitely uh, people are starting to learn about Sarks and what it is and uh, the capability that we we bring to the table for a special operations team. Um, and did you so, know that you were going to go straight? In, like before you joined the Navy, had you already decided you wanted to become a Sark, or did that happen uh, after you joined the Navy? Um, it happened after I joined the Navy. I didn't find out about it till uh, field med school, and that's that's actually kind of goes into the pipeline is, um, so after you go to Navy boot camp, you know, if you're rated corpsman, you go to core school. And then if you're going with the Marines, you have to go through field medical training battalion. And so you're learning instead of in core schools, mainly focused on kind of, uh, hospital being a nurse's aide or bedside, you know, assistant. And then you, you learn some basic trauma stuff, but, field medical training battalion, they're definitely trying to plus you up on the trauma side. So when you deploy with the Marines, you're able to do that. And that's where they have the screener to actually um, qualify for the SARC pipeline. And it's the NSW uh, physical screening test, the same one you would do for if you're trying to go to another special program, say, you know, BUDS 
and it's all the same requirements. And so that's, that's where I found out about it and seemed like it was going to be a good fit. So I screened in and got selected to the pipeline. And from there you go to basic reconnaissance course. And so the same course, the, you know, that makes recon Marines. And then, uh, after you complete that, depending on, you know, what school seats are available or basically the order from there can be kind of changed up where, where you end up in the pipeline, but you have to complete all these schools to be a SARC. So at some point you're going to go to, uh, army basic airborne school down in Fort Benning, Georgia, and then you'll go to Marine combatant diver down at Panama city and the amphibious reconnaissance Corman course, which is also known as like dive medicine for medical personnel. Same course that the dive medical technicians go through, learn how to run the uh, recompression chambers and run treatment tables for dive related injuries. And that's down in Panama city. And then you go to special operations combat medic course. And uh, that's uh, part of the, you know, well-known 18 Delta, um, course for, you know, special forces, medic sergeants. Right. And I think most, if not all special operations medics from the different branches go to this course to, uh, be, to become special operations medics. Right. So, so we're, so we're in this course with, you know, ranger, ranger medics, um, you'll have, uh, the SWIC guys will have them. The SEALs will occasionally have guys, but now they're kind of moving away from from that because the when SEAL became its own rate, they lost the Corman SEALs that were rated Corman, but were also SEALs. You know what I mean? Hmm. And traditionally, those guys would go through the 18 Delta course, but now um, since they're rated SEAL, the way the Navy works, it's it's on a case by case basis there there might be some guy go through um, through special operations medic course, but they've been relying pretty heavily on um, surface IDCs. Um, yeah I, I, did but, that happen recently where the seals got their own rate? Uh, that happened I want to say back in 2006 so it's been that, like that for a while but um, when I went through I, I went through, in 2008, I was in Sockham, and there were still SEALs in our class back then, but um, there's been less and less over time. And so that's like that's like the the complete SARC pipeline. To be a special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman, you have to, you know, screen in at field med and then make it through every single one of those courses before you're considered a SARC. And that's um, that's kind of unique in that you know uh, a reconnaissance marine will will go through BRC and then they're a reconnaissance marine, right? Ready to be on a recon platoon. Well, we still have to go through dive, jump, you know, special operations medic course, dive medicine. So you spend a lot of time in training before you end up at a uh, platoon or in a raider team. Yeah, that seems like a nice amount of time of different courses you have to complete. Well, I know for um, 
the Green Beret medics, the 18 Deltas, it's around two years until they're ready to uh, go to a team. Uh, is it around a similar time frame for you guys? Yeah, I would say um, around two years at the minimum. And then the, you know, that's that's if everything goes smooth, smoothly. You know, you don't end up injured or you don't, you know, fail or get recycled or, you know, if you made it through clean the first time, um, it would be two years. Right. So. That's a lengthy amount of, of training to go through. But I guess you guys have so much that you have to cover um, being medics on a, you know, an amphibious special operations team. Um, and so after you complete the, the special operations medical course and you're ready to go to a team, is, is it done by like whatever they need? You know, this team needs a medic or this team needs a medic. So that's where you go. So kind of choose, choose your, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, the, the Navy has, you know, a certain amount of billets set aside for SARCs at, uh, recon battalion and, you know, at Marine Raider battalions and then some, you know, the training, various training commands also have some slots. And so typically when you finish the pipeline, it's basically needs, needs of the Navy needs of the Marine Corps, right? So where, where do they need guys? And so you could find yourself at Raider battalion or at recon battalion, uh, usually starting out. Okay, and and how how long total was your time in the Navy, like your entire career? Uh, just over ten years. Okay, okay, and after so after you finished um, the uh, Special Operations Med course, where did you end up? I ended up at so, like I said, there was a little. Um, it can end, the training pipeline can end up in different orders. So I actually did special operations medic course before I went to dive and dive medicine. So I went down to Panama city after being in Fort Bragg. And, uh, so I finished up the pipeline down there when I was done with dive medicine. Then I was a SARC and I got orders to first recon baton. Okay. Awesome. And you, and this was, you've transitioned and you've done both, right? You've worked in, in recon battalion and MARSOC. Yes. So I did uh, work up and a deployment with a uh, first recon uh, platoon. And this was in 2009 and then deployment on 2010. And that was a pretty good deployment. And we came back and then uh, three of us were selected to go over to a Raider battalion um, out of Paul Starks there. And we went to Raider battalion and then we hit up uh, special operations independent duty course which is basically the the rest of 18 Delta, which, um, so you have your SARC and then you have a special operations independent duty corpsman, which is basically just like the next career progression for a SARC. Right. So the, so pretty much the medics from the different branches going through that course, that special operations course, they will complete uh, a, a portion of it or half of it or something like that. And then mm-hmm. the only people to complete the full course are the Green Beret 18 Delta medics or the SEALs have independent duty corpsmen. And then uh, you guys also have independent duty corpsmen. And, and that's what you ended up uh, doing, right? Yep. Yep. So the, you know, the first portion being mainly focused on uh, you basically become, you know, uh, 
for lack of a better term, you know, a god at trauma, treating trauma and uh, keeping patients alive on the battlefield. And then whereas the the rest of it's more on uh, the, the clinical and treatment side, you, you know, you learn war wound surgery, um, tons about, you know, all the different disease processes and uh, coming out of that, we're actually something unique about us is we're considered actual um, healthcare providers. So even, even back in the States, we're able to, you know, see patients prescribe medications, order MRIs, um, and do all those, um, those like provider roles back in the, back in garrison, even when we're not deployed. And I think that's, uh, one of the things that kind of sets us aside from, from the others. Like I said, when SEAL became its own rate, um, even if they go through the special operations independent duty corpsman course, they're not considered providers. So they, they still have a lot of freedom to do stuff, uh, OCONUS, but in the States, um, you have to have a, you know, provider number to actually, you know, prescribe certain medications and stuff like that. And, uh, so after you do, um, you know, you go back and you, and you continue the course, something that I, I learned about, uh, maybe a year ago or, or the, the term was first intro, kind of introduced to me. I, I was reading an article from the journal of special operations medicine. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Uh, what did you say again? The, the Journal of the Special Operations Medicine. Yep. Yeah. So the, I, I read an article there, and uh, you know they were talking about prolonged field care and how the the military wanted to to focus on that in the event that you know wars that may be fought in the future, um, we wouldn't have complete air superiority at all times. Meaning, if somebody gets wounded, you won't be able to just call in a medevac you know, immediately and get them back to the hospital uh, within that uh, golden hour, you know, that one hour time frame uh, after somebody gets wounded. And, yep. and and so prolonged field care would kind of be, you know, uh, sitting on patients essentially for uh, a number of days and, and patients who have, you know, extreme wounds. And, and is, is that, you know, a, a part of that course? Is that where you guys are also uh, learning as well? Yeah. So that's, that, that's a big focus. And so that's, that's why you learn, uh, the surgery piece and how to run anesthesia and all the following on nursing care. And it's, it's basically, you can, you can almost, when, when you're, when you're out there, you can do anything through a doctor's, you know, directives, you know, you have a, you have a doctor on the line they can talk you through, different procedures and stuff you may need to do if you're sitting on a guy for, you know, four days, five days a week, however long it takes to get, you know, evac to you. If you and I know they're talking about it as a future thing, but I mean, there's already been um, case scenarios of guys having to sit on um, patients for, you know, several days before getting evac. And I mean, if you think about some of the deep bush areas in Africa or, um, you know, some, some of these places that like, like you said, we don't have air superiority in, uh, like we did and, or do in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, for example, like my, every time I deployed to Afghanistan, I, I had, you know, air evac within 30 to 40 minutes, you know? And so 
the it, it was never never an issue for me to have to sit on a patient for several days you know what i mean right um however something unique about us was you know doing are, are you familiar with village stability operations yeah yeah so being plugged in in a village um like I, myself i would be sort of the medical provider for this village so I would have patients come almost daily, uh, Afghan patients to come see me and I would treat them over, over time, you know, and we'd have a Shura every week. And sometimes I would have, you know, hundred plus guys lined up my door, you know, doing sick call. And, uh, we did for a time have a local doctor that we were kind of working with and granted he was a Afghan doctor. So I think he had had some training in Germany, but he was definitely, um, I would say he wasn't up, up to our standard and, right. you know, had, had, had some kind of weird practices, but we were just yeah. kind of w- working alongside him and, you know, just trying to help promote him. So when we, you know, when we left, people would know to like go to him and, you know, you know, we're just trying to build him up, you know, and, and actually teach him some stuff. So, right, and it's, it's it's useful, and it'll you know you teach that guy, and then he's able to take care of people, and uh, you know that kind of yeah. leaves them with the the right impression of of what uh, America's trying to do over there. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was until they blew him up. Um, oh wow! We, yeah, they uh, we the United Arab Emirates guys that were with us built a a bazaar for the village and uh, Dr. Ramazi, who's really excited about that because he was going to be able to open up a shop. I had visited his clinic that was at his home and it was down in his basement, basically in, you know, one of these mud walled houses. And I mean, he had a pretty nice setup for being in a, you know, underground dirt wall room, but this was a nice, you know, concrete building with this, you know, one of those sliding locking doors and everything. And he was pretty excited. And shortly, a couple of days, I think, or you know, maybe a week after he was in his new new little shop, there was a, um, I think there was a car bomb or a suicide bomb that went off and killed him. Unfortunately for that village. Oh, so, wow. but yeah, yeah, that's crazy, man. What um, so all of the things that are done. Uh, in terms of trauma control and uh, like pretty much the first half of that 18 Delta course, all of that stuff is pretty much uh, pre-hospital care and, and things that you do until someone can get to a surgeon or whatever in order to, you know, surgically close the, the wounds and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, TCCC now that, you know, after 15 years of war, now that more medics are, are coming out of the military, corpsmen are coming out of the military, Guys are setting up training courses, starting their own companies, and I think the overall awareness of uh, bleeding control is is starting to uh, raise up in, in the United States, and and it's it's really something that if people had basic knowledge of it, I think it would save a lot of lives. There's some some interesting stats on on some of these type of um, you know situations where people would die, uh, people die, and it would have been preventable. If someone has some understanding of, of bleeding control, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. There, for, for a long time, even in emergency medicine, we were treating tourniquets as like this last resort and it's super bad because it can cause nerve damage and all this. So um, there's been a big push after all this knowledge from that we've gained from being in these wars for so long, something that's actually good as we've been saving a lot of guys um, who have had extremity wounds and it comes from tourniquets. And so basically all the data says tourniquets are just not bad. They're only good. And so the, there's this big push of, you know, the stop the bleed campaign. So we're starting to look at things different where, um, you know, before some of the protocols would be like, you know, somebody gets in a, let's say a rollover car wreck in the U S and, you know, they're missing a limb and they're, you know, have some arterial bleeding out of that. Well, you like elevate that limb to try and let gravity stop it, you know, and apply a direct pressure and then, you know, get on the hook with a doctor and ask permission to put on a tourniquet, you know, somewhere down the road. And we're just finding that actually it's just good to get tourniquets on right away and actually to have the public trained on tourniquets. So, because you can bleed out in 90 seconds from an arterial bleed. And so unless you're planning on getting that arterial bleed right next to a paramedic or, you know, some EMS, then you better hope somebody else knows what they're doing. And so, yeah, there, there is a big shift in that. And yeah, there is a lot of, um, public training going on. A lot of guys are starting, uh, companies and they're actually trying to get bleeding kits set up in public areas. Um, just like you would have an AED, like an artificial defibrillator. And so that's, that's all real good. Um, like we've seen, I think, sort of examples that kind of bring it home is like the Boston Marathon bombing where, you know, you have this traumatic explosion and then in the aftermath, you have people missing limbs and whatnot that need tourniquets. And uh, the more people we have trained up on it, the better survivability will be following um, events like that or, you know, other, other traumatic events like car wrecks and whatnot that happen every day. Yeah, I think it's one of the, the, the positives and plus to come out of the, the global war on terror uh, thus far is, is the, um, the amount of knowledge that we've gained in, in these areas of, of medicine, trauma medicine. Uh, I believe the, uh, there's been a record number of guys who are surviving wounds on the battlefield. And, you know, I've talked to different medics and, uh, from different brands, you know, Ranger medics, uh, 18 Deltas, uh, Sarks, Corman, and what what seems to be the huge or, or the uh, the difference maker is that guys are trained on on tourniquet use, uh, you know, on the on, on a platoon level. So everybody who's there, you know, all these infantry guys, uh, people are are able to apply a tourniquet, you know, even before the medic or the corpsman gets there. So. Uh, that way, right. you know, you don't need uh, someone who's super specialized in in trauma con- and bleeding control to 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 start the very basic treatment, and that's able to. And of course, having the air superiority and being able to get helicopters in and out to to get guys to uh, surgical centers fast, uh, you know, these things really change the the game. And I think 
if you applied that to, um, you know, here to the United States and, you know, maybe taught classes in high school on bleeding control, you know, yeah. within a couple of years, you'll have, you know, a hundred million people who know how to use tourniquets. And I, I believe that would really change uh, the amount of fatalities or preventable deaths here in the United States. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. And, um, there it's, it's basically the big curve is it's, it's kind of like a public education piece. Right. And it's, it's getting over the whole like old adage of, Oh, if you put a tourniquet on that leg, you're going to lose it. You know, like, no, you put a tourniquet on that leg, you're going to save that person's life, you know? And I think that's, um, sort of where things are heading and it's, it's, it's really good. And back to the training piece is like, that's part of a Sark's job too is, or, or just a Corman, you know, even in a grunt platoon or whatever is training up his guys to the same level he is. And oftentimes the, the Corman or the Sark isn't even the first guy on a casualty. Um, oftentimes, you know, he's, uh, maybe further back in the patrol order and, you know, the, the whole Hollywood thing of like yelling for a corpsman and then me running across the battlefield to somebody, you know, that's, that's actually not how I train my guys at all. It's, I trained my guys up to a proficiency level where we all trusted each other and everybody was proficient enough where we don't have to put anybody unnecessarily at risk. You know, this one guy that needs to come over and like save the day per se everybody's capable of doing that. And so you're preventing that, like that second injury or that third injury, you know, just from somebody having to maneuver through, through fire just to, you know, perform uh, medical aid. Now everybody's capable. So the closest guy grabs that guy, gets him off the X and starts treatment. And then they can do everything. You know, if it was me, they could do everything up until, I, you know, I needed evac. Now, some of that extended care piece is, you know, is is where where they would need additional help. You know, so was that the the issue before? People thought that that using a tourniquet would, you know, cause so much nerve damage that you, that it's you, you couldn't save the limb. Yeah, I think I think there was like an old Boy Scout saying or something like. Yeah, you can make a tourniquet, but if you put a tourniquet on, just know they're going to like lose that leg or something like that if it's left on. And uh, I mean, a lot of people don't realize they use tourniquets in surgery. You know, if they're they're working on a leg, they'll leave uh, a tourniquet on that leg for you know to six hours, and that's a lot of time. You know, but right, I, I then, think there's videos online. You can, you can see that. Uh, I think I've seen videos like that where, you know, they're on the uh, they're in the operating room on the table, and then there's tourniquets tied high up on a patient's leg or something like that, and they're working on a lower lower part of the leg. It's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and so um, that's that's the thing, and and I guess what I would encourage people if they're hearing this, maybe they're not familiar with tourniquets, is like it. It's one of those things that you can watch videos of it, but you really need to go to go to a training and get your hands on them and, you know, purchase some. And because 
it's when you have to do it, you don't want it to be the first time. Right. And, um, it's, it's, it's not difficult. I mean, you know, this is uh, a tourniquet's a very, very basic principle and it's been used ages and in warfare and just people getting injured, you know, and ever since even the concept of just like, uh, you know, taking off your belt or something and and tying it above the wound is pretty, is pretty much a tourniquet. Yeah. And it's, it's an, it's an age old remedy, but it it still works to this day. Like you still need the blood to stay in your body (laughs) to keep, keep going to the brain and keeping you alive. So, um, so yeah, I, I can't, I can't encourage people enough to, um, train on physically and uh, at a regular interval. Right. It, it makes such a huge difference. And, um, you know, and then, you know, with so many guys getting out, there's so many good companies where you could, uh, you know, take courses from and learn. And, and it's really not difficult to do your research, you know, get on Google, get on social media. Uh, there's so many companies out there that you can kind of, um, hook up with and, and get good information from and then get good training from as well. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, um, so you were in, uh, the recon battalion and then you went over to MARSOC and you deployed, uh, both times. Yes. I deployed once with recon battalion and then twice with, uh, Marine Raider battalion. Okay. Okay, and and the the Marine Raiders or, or Marine Special Operations Command is interesting. You know that they, they were around in World War Two, uh, fighting in the Pacific and stuff like that. But up until two thousand six, I want to say uh, the Marines didn't have a component in SOCOM in the Special Operations Command, and and then and then that was the kind of birth of the of Marsoc and the Marine Raiders or or the resurrection I should kind of say and um for a, a unit that's been around for just over 10 years you guys have made like leaps and bounds in in terms of um kind of finding your your flow on the battlefield and and even uh the leadership piece has grown as well I, I've had a a Marine Raider on before and and we talked about some of the kind of growing pains they had, uh, especially at the the commanding level with uh, guys having that kind of old school mentality and, and not really adjusting to, uh, you know, what was going on on the battlefield. And it was kind of an interesting uh, concept. Yeah, it's the the one thing I love about um, working with Marines is that even though we are given shitty jobs, we, we still just, we, we did it. You know what I mean? We did, did what we had to do to, to still do a good job, even though we may not like it, you know? Um, I think there's in village stability operations, it's very frustrating. Um, here, here we are plugged into, you know, Taliban controlled area, surrounded by poppy fields and you know we're trying to convince these people to stand up against the Taliban or the you know the drug lords and 
like start their own police force. And it's, it's a very frustrating mission. And, you know, you're getting harassed by the Taliban during all of this. And the, I'd seen, you know, I'm not going to name any because I don't want to talk shit on other special operations, but some, some of them, you know, are like, you know, fuck this mission and we're just going to hang out, you know, and right. we don't care what happened. We don't care what happens here. And the thing I liked about the Marines is like, you know, Hey, we're here anyways. Like we, we might as well do it, you know? Right. And I, I think that's where we made a really good name for ourselves. And then the, the, you know, higher echelons um, of, of command started noticing um, that we were doing that, you know, that we're, we're committed uh, no matter what. Well, the, those, um, those village, village stability operations, those, that kind of warfare is difficult and it's, it's tricky because you're dealing, it's not just like, you know, red and blue and, you know, we're going to meet up and we're going to, you know, shoot it out. <laughs> You know, you're, oh, yeah. you're going off of of people and and how people react, and and you're trying to influence uh, without you know gunfighting. Even though that is a big part of it, because you know, like you said, you guys were getting attacked uh, while you're conducting these type of operations, and mm-hmm. it's really a a complex kind of um, you know environment to to combine all of these things, like a like kind of a diplomat and a warrior at the same exact time, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like I said, we'd have a sure every week where we're sitting down with all the village elders and we'd have, you know, 70 to hundred plus guys, um, every week sitting down to try and talk out the issues, which is very frustrating because oftentimes it was just a lot of talk, you know? Um, and you know, now, now that I've been out and everything, it's, you, you definitely gain some hindsight and perspective on things. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult task and the, it's a very dynamic relationship situation, you know, where a guy, yeah, he might want positive change in his village, but he's like, how long are these Americans going to be here helping? You know, what's it going to be like when they leave? And the you know he may have family who's in the Taliban, so it's it's just like it's 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 very dynamic, right? It's complex, and I, I think even the level of of complexity in those type of situations is probably unique to Afghanistan, as, as they're really old uh, culture and society and. I think the way they do things generally is so much different from the way we do things that trying to accomplish a goal like that and deal with, you know, their, their way of doing things really kind of, uh, makes it much more of a difficult situation. Um, and you were running those, those VSOs, uh, in the Raider Battalion or at Force uh, Force Recon? In, in Raider Battalion. My recon deployment, we we were sort of, um, we came in, and it's right when, right after the troop surge, and uh, they had pushed through Marja, and then we showed up in Afghanistan, and the, the battalion commanders, 
we're basically wondering, hey, where are all these fighters coming into Marja from? And so they're like, let's let's check out this Trek Nala. We haven't really had anybody there in a while. So um, let's, you know, we have this this free, uh, we had two, two companies of re- recon marines with us. And they're like, let's just fly them in and they'll do human terrain mapping, which, um, you know, it's not what traditionally people think of the reconnaissance battalion as, you know, like, being kind of like forward of a, an invasion and, you know, reporting back and, you know, calling in fires and, and reporting on troop movements and stuff like that. So I guess that's where, uh, recon fits that, you know, kind of still, uh, a special role and, you know, being this versatile unit that they said, okay, Hey, well, we don't have that traditional recon mission for you. So here, just go do this. And we did it really well. And turns out Trek Nawa was the, hometown for these Taliban commanders and everybody that was running the fighting in Marja. So we ended up in a lot of gunfights. And um, I think after like the first 30 days, there was only like two days we weren't in, uh, in ticks. And then, but so that was, that was really fun. And then we actually went up to Sangin um, it was right when the Brits had cleared out of there. They had been completely IED'd in. And then, um, so they pulled out and there was kind of this period that uh, nobody was there. And they sent us in to do the same thing, to human terrain map the area and clear space for the, the grunts to move in and hold ground. And so that was also a fun time of, getting to uh being gunfights but yeah i know sangin was a pretty kind of kinetic area for any western uh, forces uh, moving moving through there or or operating in and out of that area oh yeah and uh we we definitely cleared um a lot of bad dudes off the battlefield during that deployment and i think that's actually what led to some of the you know quote-unquote success at uh, a village stability site called uh, Puse. It was kind of like one of the models. They were like, oh, this is, you know, the great peaceful place and um, in Sangin that we created. And a lot of people forget that there was a lot of dudes that were were taken off the battlefield right right before that time in peace. So, right. Well, right. It's the combination of, you know, fighting, you know, gunfighting and, and whatnot. And then doing that kind of village stability role where you're in there treating people for, you know, medical on a medical side and, uh, you know, trying to build uh, stuff in the village and things that, and provide what people need. And it's really yeah. kind of what, uh, in, at least in some cases, not all, but what the Taliban have been doing in Afghanistan or, or any kind of uh, group who is opposing a government and uh, in, in, really in any part of the world. Uh, you know, you, you try and win over the local population, and that's kind of what you need to successfully run an insurgency, right? Yeah, but I would say some of the lessons learned from me in retrospect is just kind of like some of the reasons I don't think it was really working in that area. Because after we pulled out of those village stability sites, they just got taken over back by the Taliban. Right. And the thing is, we, we were trying to hold ground, and we had a quick turnover, right? So every nine months or so, they're seeing 
new faces, uh, a, a new team to deal with, a new, you know, so you go through that whole, you know, building relationships and everything again. And um, so there, there's no, you know, and, and commanders are rolling through and you have a new commander that comes in and he wants to kind of leave his mark on his deployment. So he maybe, you know, comes in and switches stuff up when it doesn't need to and be switched up or maybe things aren't working there. And, you know, we're, you know, we're trying to get a quote unquote local police force, but they're like, it becomes a numbers game where commander is saying, well, you need to have this much police by the end of the month. And what happens is you tell the villagers, Hey, we're offering money for you to be police. And then that word gets spread around. And next thing you know, some guy from across Afghanistan is driven to your area and he's volunteering to be a police officer. And, you know, and we're kind of stuck in this, you know, we're being forced to make, make him a police officer by our commanders who are saying, you need to reach these numbers. We don't care where the guys are coming from. And then you end up with, you know, maybe a quarter of your police force actually being local, you know? And so the villagers are seeing the rest of the police force is just other outsiders or, you know, maybe even worse than the local Taliban. So that's where I said it's, you know, it's completely dynamic. I think, uh, in theory, it sounds great and it's had some limited successes in certain areas, but it definitely needs to be, um, reworked or thought of as a, as basically it's a long-term game and you can't have a quick turnaround in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of the issue, uh, or, or where the, the clash of the, the concept versus, you know, the, it being applied. And, yeah. The reality of it. Right. And, and then you have, um, you know, special operations units, specifically like the green berets who their, their entire playbook is about that kind of warfare, you know, counterinsurgency. And then the SEALs as well, uh, you know, MARSOC, Marine Raiders are, are doing these type of operations because that's the, the kind of fight that, that it's being fought now, right? So, mm-hmm. but the problem is, is, you know, on the higher level, like you said, you know, the, the, the team switches after nine months, a new commander comes in and he wants to do things his way versus, you know, this is how things should be done for the, the greater good and, and kind of looking at the, the larger picture. And I think, that the successful part of it is really ingrained into the guys on the ground versus the people calling the shots, um, you know, at whatever the command level is. And I think one of the issues is, you know, if you have a, you know, a special forces captain or, uh, you know, a, a, a captain in the Marine Corps who truly understands that concept, but, you know the the battle space commander or whoever he has to report to is just is not going to let that happen simply because of the difference in rank and and things that have nothing to do with you know the actual strategy that will win you know yeah or i mean just trying to again you know put put everything through that square hole right it worked worked in this one village in afghanistan so it must work in all villages in afghanistan yeah. right and that's not the case um as we've seen, there's very different parts of 
Afghanistan, just like there is in any country. I mean, just think of how different uh, different states are in the United States and right. the, you know, the sort of culture that's there and the, you know, the political ties or, or you know. So it's, uh, but something that I, that I actually thought of that's kind of back to sort of explaining the SARC piece is that, yes, um, being a special operations medic is your primary uh, mission on a team, but the teams being so small, you end up taking on, you know, second and third roles in a team. Um, and like my third deployment, we were ended up having to do split team ops because we were covering over so much area in the Helmand. And so that's half of a MSOT team of six guys plus, you know, our army infantry uplift and everything. But as far as the special operations team, we're, you know, doing everything that you would do with a whole team with half of the guys. And so I ended up being the lead ALP mentor for that area. And so, you know, as a SARC, not only was I responsible for the medical piece, you know, for the whole entire uh, village and camp I was on, but I was also in charge of the 300 local police we had in that area. And so I guess that's where um, that, that kind of separates us out and sort of demonstrates, you know, we're, we're not just a, a corpsman or a medic, you know, we're, we're actually capable of, of, of much more. Right, and, and that's kind of that that special operations role, uh, yep. you know, working the the strategy and and, and what the mission is. And uh, so you also had a, a or you have a brother in the in the um, in the Marine Corps, or uh, no, he's he's an Army. He was. Uh, uh, I actually have a younger brother that just got commissioned in the Army as well. But um, my older brother, he was a West Point grad, infantry officer, with. Uh, the uh, big red one and he he got injured um pretty quickly or wounded i should say in on his first deployment to afghanistan and was burned very badly oh was it a, a blast wound was he wounded in like ied or yes so um he this cra- crazy enough uh we've actually looked on a map this happened 10 miles away from the village stability site I was at. Oh. Um, and he was operating out of Kandahar sort, sort of near like the Helmand border. And uh, so basically they're doing uh, a route security for the, uh, some new turbines that were going up to Kajaki dam and oh, wow. the Canadians were running that. Yeah, no, yeah. I actually know some people who are uh, on the British side, anyway, who were involved in the Kajaki Dam uh, uh, construction and whatnot. Interesting. Awesome. So, the one of his other, I guess, uh, you know, sister or brother uh, platoons got uh, got in a tick with this uh, village, and they came under fire. And he was basically the QRF for that, and they had already actually. This is like right when the army was starting to get uh, MRAPs and they were still using up armored Humvees. So he had two MRAPs and one had already 
been disabled earlier in the day from an IED. And they had kind of like spread loaded guys. And then he put the other MRAP up front. And as they were pulling into position during this active gunfight, um, his truck, his Humvee hit an IED. And it was uh, estimated 60 pounds of HME with two anti-tank mines stacked on top of each other. And so it basically obliterated the Humvee he was in. And he found himself on fire outside of it. And uh, I actually just got a chance to do a podcast with uh, one of his squad leaders who was in the truck behind him who said, you know, they thought for sure nobody was alive, uh, that thing. But um, actually three of the guys other than my brother made it out to one, unfortunately, didn't. And. So yeah, my brother sustained um, extensive burns over over thirty percent of his body, third degree, oh, wow. and ended up getting evac'd out to uh, Bamsey down in San Antonio, down in Bernina down there. Oh, is, is that is that uh, that spot in San Antonio? Is that like one of the, the leading places for burn uh, burn treatment? Yeah, in the world. Yep. Yeah. So, and so he was he was medically retired out there. Um, Interesting enough, I was actually in uh, SOCOM or Special Operations Medic course when that happened. So, and I had a test the next day when I found out. Uh, so that was <laughs> that was an interesting time for me. But the, um, but yeah, so it's it's nice. I actually um, moved to be close to him in in Texas and. We, we spent a lot of time together working out at our uh, gym here, and awesome. uh, we, could, we, we could spend a lot of time together. And after I later deployed, deployed and got wounded myself, he's he's been there as kind of a mentor and helping me through the process, you know. So I've been pretty fortunate to have him. Oh, that's awesome, man. And, and what – um, can you talk about you, you getting wounded? Yeah. Uh, so at – uh, during my second deployment, the village stability site we were at, we had a little forward uh, position. Uh, it was about a click north of our main VSP site, and it was kind of closer to um, into enemy territory, if you will. And we would get attacked there weekly. And um, anything from RPGs initiated... Um, with P- PKM and AK fire afterwards to uh, regular uh, UGL attacks, which is like the uh, under grenade launcher on an AK. It shoots a 40 mic mic, much like our uh, 203s. Um, and basically what they do is sneak up with this AK grenade launcher underneath their, their uh, man robes and... Um, so, you know, as, as we're looking out there, we, we just see somebody walking, right? And then um, they would come up to their max shooting distance and then um, use our uh, camera tower as kind of like an aiming stake. And then they'd just shoot it towards that and they land within the compound. So uh, we always needed medic up at this forward position. So uh, I spent a majority of my time up there and... I ended up being exposed to a lot of these uh, grenade blasts that were coming in. 
And so one day in particular, so, so basically that's, there was a bunch of consecutive blasts that I was exposed to leading up to sort of the, the bad day. And, um, something unique about this forward position is like, there's one Sark, a, uh, Marine Raider or CSO. And then there would be four army infantry that we had with us to kind of help stand post. And then the rest were Afghan special forces. We'd have anywhere from, you know, 20 to 25 Afghan special forces and then five United Arab Emirates guys with us. So kind of this unique situation where, uh, a Sergeant, you know, critical skills operator was the ground force commander for that little, you know, forward, forward position. And so that was, that was a really fun time out there. It's very unique. And, and is that unique simply because you guys are kind of so far forward uh, and, and where, you know, that, that critical skills operator in a larger base, he wouldn't be a commanding officer on the ground. Right. Right. Usually, you know, your, your captain um, would be in, in the Marine special operations team. And then, you know, after that would be your team chief, who would be, a, you know, a, uh, a gunny or a, uh, most likely a master sergeant in the Marines. So, um, and, and there's only like, you know, really, uh, six or seven uh, Americans with 25 Afghans and, you know, uh, five to 10 United Arab Emirates guys. So, um, and this is when a lot of those insider attack stuff was happening too. So some of some of the teams were better than others, and there are some high tension points where it's kind of like, man, if things go sideways, it's going to be uh, a little uneven, you know? Yeah, really sideways, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just, it was kind of, it was, um, it was, it was, it was fun because you're kind of out, out away from everything, you know, out, out of sight, um, out of mind, not dealing with a lot of the, you know, command stuff coming down from higher because you're, you're just up on this little forward position, but we are also getting in the most gunfights up there. So it was, um, it was fun just kind of learning to wrangle the, the Afghan special forces. And, you know, that always didn't work out, which kind of leads to me getting wounded on one of the roofs. We had already killed one of the guys that was shooting grenades at us and I'd caught him on camera and that's how we tracked him down. Um, this guy adjusted his AK strap underneath his, uh, man dress and I saw it. Then we got the local police, uh, trained in on him and we actually got one of those guys killed that was coming in shooting the grenades at us. And so I had the other guy on camera and I memorized his face and then I saw him coming in another day to like a fighting position. And so I went outside and went and got on the, uh, we'd set up, uh, the, uh, I think it's a Mark 47, the replacement for the Mark 19, um, on one of the roofs and yeah, Mark 47. And so I got on that and I was kind of getting a, uh, directions on where, where this guy was. And I was out there, you know, with my GPS and everything, trying to get trained on his position that he moved into. And all of a sudden I heard grenades hitting south of our compound. And that was kind of weird. It was about 200 meters south of us. And 
usually they hit like either insider compound or right outside the wall each time. And so it was kind of weird that there are Southwoods and it started clicking my head like, oh, this guy's the new guy to replace the basically the designated grenade shooter at us. And he he started walking them on. So they started getting closer and closer. And I'm trying to dial in into their position. And because they're behind some, you know, bushes and cover and everything. And so then a grenade hits the the sandbags on, you know, the wall right in front of me. And I took all the blast from that grenade and, you know, the shrapnel. I, I was sort of like underneath the sandbags. So I didn't take any shrapnel. But I get hit by this blast and sort of dazed and confused. Uh, clicked through my mind. I was just like, hey, let's let me talk to the interpreter, see if we can, you know, intercept any communications to better find out where these guys are. So I basically like stumbled to the back of the roof and I'm yelling for our Tajiman, our interpreter. And at, right at that time, one of our Afghan special forces counterpart walked out behind me and shot an RPG and I was standing directly behind him. So I basically, you know, took the grenade blast seconds later, I took this RPG back blast and, um, it's kind of weird the way the overpressure worked on that is it didn't blast me off the roof. It actually grabbed me and like flattened me to the roof. And basically I thought I had been hit directly in the chest with one of the incoming grenades. Um, and so, uh, basically, uh, you know, we ended up locating where these guys were. I started chasing them with the grenade launcher and, um, you know, and the other CSO was dropping mortars and stuff. And so I actually didn't end up, um, I'm not, I'm not the best patient. <laughs> uh, I'm really good at treating guys, but I'm kind of stubborn. So I was basically trying to hide my symptoms and uh, it wasn't until the next day we were actually playing the volleyball with the uh, Afghan special forces that had difficulty breathing. And then I went up on post and I was, um, I had really bad nystagmas in my right eye and uh, I was about to pass out when I was on post. And so then uh, the CSO that was with me talked me into doing a, doing a mace exam and getting checked out and I had him do one on me and I did horrible on it. And having had the mace exam, which is an exam you do for concussions for those of you who don't know. And I did horrible on it and I had it memorized. So I knew I was pretty jacked up at that point. Um, tried to tell him that I could just sleep it off and he, uh, he wasn't having it. So, we ended up bringing me down to the other medic. He did an exam on me and they decided to evac me out. I went to, back to uh, Bastion, hung out and came to neck for a couple of days. But, yeah, that, that stuff is dangerous. I'm, I, I've seen videos online. I, I believe it was in Syria or maybe Iraq. I'm not sure. But, you know, with, with this fight against ISIS, there's mm -hmm. too much footage now online. You can just, like, watch hours of YouTube videos of, of, of actual battles. And I, and one of these fights, uh, this dude was was firing his rifle, and then he, I guess he was going to, you know, get get back behind cover. 
and one of the guys he was with stepped out with an RPG, and he was standing like right in the back blast area. He fired the RPG and it like killed the guy instantly. Uh, so that stuff is is pretty pretty dangerous. And I think some people or a lot of people don't really realize that you don't necessarily have to get hit directly with you know fragments from a grenade or you know shrapnel or whatever to be affected. Yeah. And your story is is kind of proof of that, right? Yeah, and so uh, to go along with my stubbornheadedness, I, it, it, you feel when when you're in that 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 fight over there, and you're you're in the mission, and you know specifically up at the you know it happened up at this Ford location that I had a lot of you know hard work and experience up there, right? I was you know pouring everything I had into trying to you know do the best job of finding these bad dudes that were attacking us and everything. And so it, all I wanted to do was get back, right? Like, I just want to get back to my team, you know? And part of the problem with, you know, it just being your brain that's injured and not having, you know, a missing limb or a physical wound that's like physically, you know, uh, like limiting your, your ability to move or like operate. I was able to mask a lot of the symptoms that were going on. Basically when I got evac, I was like, I don't know why they evac me. I'm, I'm perfectly fine. And they ended up, uh, clearing me and sending me back out. And then I was, uh, <laughs> exposed to some more blast, you know? And so, you know, part of that's, you know, stubbornness, but it, it just kind of goes in. I mean, I've known a lot of guys that have, have been exposed to blasts that just kind of, you know, Oh, I, I can deal with it you know, or whatever, I'm not missing a limb, so I'm going to stay in the fight type deal. And it, it helps for the, for the mission, but, um, in, in the long run kind of, uh, screws you over. Um, but the, yeah, it was, it was basically getting back from that deployment is when I started noticing, uh, a lot of like symptoms where I've started getting the headaches started, uh, getting very like, like electrical, uh, storm type stuff in my head. And then, um, the, uh, I, one of the early things that I noticed was, uh, my speech was, uh, having difficulties. I would run sentences together and it's, it, brain, brain injuries are just weird in general. Um, they, I think, you know, a lot of times we try and just throw everything under, the sports concussion arena when it comes to brain injury. And that's such a limited view of the reality of it. And we, we understand so little of the brain, but, um, the, so, so one of the weird things that happened is I was having difficulty with speech. I was running sentences again, that, that symptom kind of like went away and others kind of got worse or developed. Like I, you know, started getting intense migraines and, um, stuff of that nature. But I started noticing like during the workup for our next deployment, cause I mean, when you get back, you just roll into the next, uh, training cycle for your next deployment and kind of speaks to, um, you know, they've been talking about, uh, special operations kind of being, uh, yes, we're very versatile and very good at doing, you know, different missions, but, uh, we're kind of being overused or, oh, yeah. you know, guys, um, guys aren't getting the proper rest periods and, and, and whatnot between deployments. Um, 
I think Mattis has talked about that recently. Um, but yeah, so I went and saw, basically got bad enough where I was like, you know what, I need to see a neurologist. And uh, I went and saw a neurologist and she basically said, it, it's, it's kind of that, that disconnect where you, you go to a Navy doctor who doesn't quite understand what combat deployments are like or what the mission of a Marine Special Operations team is, you know? And she basically says, yeah, just don't get blown up again. And so I deploy again. And in, even I, I was going to try and fight to go on the deployment regardless. Um, but that just kind of shows you the there, there's a huge disconnect I've found in seeing neurologists later is that they have no idea. They, they've, they've never seen a video of a guy being killed by an RPG back blast. Right. Right. Um, Dave, when I tell them this, like when I tell them the blast that I was exposed to even before that, like from a recoilless rifle round that came in and knocked me over while I was running, um, all that happened beforehand. And they just like, they have no concept of, of, of what that is, you know? Um, all, all they see is like what they've learned in sports concussion type stuff, you know, like, oh, you get a hit in football, take some weeks off and you're better, you know? And I think luckily there's, there's starting to be some people to move away from that. But I mean, I just got out in 2015 and there were still, you know, neurologists that were just like, well, yeah, we, we understand that you're exposed to blasts, but they don't understand the blast waves themselves. You know, they don't understand the extent of that. Um, you know, they don't know what a 40 mic mic grenade blast is like right next to your head, followed by, you know, several seconds later, a RPG back blast, you know? And so I guess that kind of explains some of the disconnect when it comes to military medicine and how we're, how we're treating guys, um, who've been, who've had blast exposures, but the, so then I deployed again and was exposed to more blasts my third deployment. And so, but yeah, that's basically how I got wounded. Right. And, 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 were you at some point able to see any any doctors who were able to help you further, or like how does that how did that work out? I um, I ended up having to get a second opinion on a neurologist and went down to San Diego um, to Balboa Medical Center down there and saw a doctor named Doctor Duckworth, and this guy was a former Marine tanker uh, turned neurologist which oh, wow. is cool. And I think it, he basically got inspired by his time, you know, watching guys get concussed from, you know, over time being tankers from those huge main guns going off. Um, and so that's kind of what inspired him to get into the field. But he actually is the guy who came up with the blast gauges idea. Um, are you familiar with those or ever heard about those? No, I'm not. So, uh, right around 2014 timeframe, they're trying to get all the special operation guys outfitted with these blast gauges, which is, uh, basically detects over pressure. Uh, it's a sensor that you'd basically put on your Molly gear on your chest, on your shoulder and one on your helmet. And it basically had three led lights on it that would, you know, if you're exposed to overpressure, it was supposed to turn like red 
if it was a bad one, you know, or yellow is like, okay, this guy needs a mace exam. But if it was red, like, hey, we probably need to evac this guy um, and give him some downtime. And so he came up with that through working with the SEALs out of their SQT training Hmm. out in the desert where they're shooting rockets. And he was doing a study on those guys. And what he noticed is, uh, first off, usually family members are the first ones to notice that there's a change in, in their, uh, significant other that's doing the job. And that comes from, like, like I said, we're, you know, we're hard headed guys and we're going, you know, forward at a hundred miles an hour and trying to stay doing the mission. You know, we don't want to be sidelined. So, you know, you kind of, you, you mass symptoms and you, you just, you, you do what you have to do to, to still be, you know, at your job and performing, you know, and then, but when you're, when you're at home and you're relaxed and maybe you're letting your guard down and stuff, that's when, um, you know, the family members actually are some of the first people to notice, um, a a change and, you know, a lot of it's like demeanor or sort of, uh, um, your effect or your, uh, your demeanor. And so the, so he, he was basically lo- looking at these instructors who were, it's not necessarily the students who come and they shoot their, you know, rocket or two and then they're done. Right. It's the instructors who are on the line, every class who are getting, they're not even standing behind the back class, but they're off to the side and they're still getting enough overpressure over time. It's cumulative. And that's what he was seeing is that these blast waves are having a cumulative damage effect. And, um, so when I saw him, he was able to, uh, sort of talk me through what, I, what I needed to do and, um, definitely did a better job of documenting the blast because he understood from being a former Marine, he understood the blast that I was exposed to and whatnot. So, uh, it was very beneficial seeing him and the, but as far as, as far as military providers, that's, that's probably, uh, the, the only one that I would kind of consider was up to par during that time. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I've, I've never heard of that. But I, I wonder if kind of further exploring that would would kind of have them mandate like a change in the way some of that training is run, um, you know, in, in terms of the, the overpressure and, and, and that kind of thing. Because that that's, you know, that kind of stuff happens in, in all type of infantry or special operations units where guys are yeah. training on different weapon systems, you know, rockets, whatever, mortars. Uh, but I, I just wonder if, if kind of exploring that further would change the way training is conducted. Uh, I mean, look, I, I know that um, if you you know if you're in a battle and and you know you, you have you have rockets available to use and they're going to be effective, you're going to use them right to 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 win that battle and, and survive that that gunfight or whatever. But I, I guess in training, it would make some sense to kind of go the the safer route. Uh, you know, I guess as long as it doesn't uh, hinder the effectiveness of the training or, I mean, just, you know, being, being aware that it is having an effect. Maybe, maybe we need to relook at, you know, safe off offset distance for the, you know, 
the instructors. I mean, maybe they need to be right up there, but maybe we need to switch out guys more, you know, or, right. um, it's, there, there's a lot of things. I think the, 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 the sort of focus I would put it on right now is an, an education piece is it's like letting everybody know, Hey, this is happening. Like this is having a real effect and it is cumulative. So if you think of not only the rocket train, but shooting mortars, and this is where, you know, it isn't just a special operations problem. You know, you have grunts that are shooting mortars and rockets and everything else too. And, you know, going to shoot houses and shooting in close proximity, you know, if you've ever been, uh, near the barrel of a short, you know, 10 inch barreled M4, uh, that has quite a concussion to it. Um, one of my buddies was friendly enough to actually shoot one right next to my ear when I didn't have ear pro in and it felt like an ice pick getting stuck in my head, you know? Right. So it's, it's all those. And then you think of, Hey guys that are jumpers and not only are they, you know, maybe they're PLF and they're hitting their heads a couple of times, you know, all, all the times you're hitting your head in training and then, you know, all the blast exposure is on top of that. And so there's a doctor that's been doing some interesting studies that's found uh, an article came out in the New York times about it actually. And basically I think some of the problem is we've been trying to view TBIs as this, Oh, it's, it's basically like a, a sports concussion and the guys are recovering, but it's basically PTSD that's keeping their symptoms on long-term and that can't be further from the truth. I'm not saying that guys with TBI don't have PTSD or PTS, but to, to look at it in that way is very disturbing. And the, this, this one, that's what the article is kind of about is looking at it as, Hey, this, some people might not have PTSD. They might be having long-term effects of TBI. And this doctor was doing research basically to restore honor to actually world, world war one vets who were, executed for being deserters and what they're thinking is uh that some of these guys would get what was called shell shock back then yeah. which is repeated exposures to these artillery you know shellings and they'd get dazed and confused and walk off the battlefield you know or leave their position and they'd get executed for being deserters and really they're just you know had brain damage and so They've actually, I think it's, they have like slides of the brain tissue from, from these guys and, uh, back in world war one and this doctor started looking at them and he noticed this fine dust pattern of scar tissue really, between the white and gray matter in your brain. And it's something that hasn't been picked up on, you know, your traditional MRIs. So where now we've been very quick to give somebody a neurocognitive screening test um, and say, no, you don't have any brain damage or giving them an MRI of their brain and being like, no, you don't have any brain damage. And so then we're staring at them. Okay. You probably just have PTSD when that's not always the case. And so this is new emerging stuff. And I just, it's, it's hard to see that, you know, military medicine and sort of the VA and everything is still kind of in that track and having, trouble updating and kind of keeping with the new data that's coming out. Right. Like I said, like but it's a slow moving machine. Yep. And 
but it, but it's an education thing. So I would say for, you know, for guys and girls that listen to your podcast that have had, uh, TBIs and stuff. And it's, it's something that's important to look into. Cause I know I, w- what they were saying was going on with me. It, it didn't make sense to what's happening in my head. Like I felt something very physically wrong in my brain. And you know, the, the migraines is, is one that especially is just, um, it's, it's hard to, to have somebody tell you that that's just a, a psychological issue, you know? And turns out it's, it's most likely, you know, um, close to some type of seizure disorder, you know, caused from this, you know, scar tissue or actual physical damage to the brain. And it's, it's a relief knowing that there, there is actually some physical damage. And even though we don't understand the brain enough to necessarily do anything about it, it's, it's important to know that you aren't just, it's not just in your head, you know, there's actually something, a, a physical process going on in your body. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, I've tried to share that article with as much people as I can, but yeah, it's, it's important stuff. I mean, and, and like you said, there isn't too much known about the brain. So a lot of these things, uh, even if we might get a new understanding of something specific, that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll know how to how to go about fixing it or treating it. Um, but you know that, that's that's pretty interesting that he was trying to, you know, they're looking at brain tissue from these World War One veterans because, you know, uh, PTSD and and um, or, or what is now called PTSD, and and now obviously now there's further uh, studying and things going on, on on brain injuries. But these type of injuries and, and effects of, of the battlefield have been really noted in, in just about every war that uh, humans have ever fought. And, you know, the, the name for it in World War One, World War II was shell shock. And I think in the Civil War, they called it soldier's heart. And, um, you know, I've never heard of that, of, of them... You know they would execute deserters, but it's possible that that was due to traumatic brain injuries. That's really interesting. Uh, would you be able to to send me that article, and maybe I could post yeah. it um, when I um, when when the, when this episode goes live, I'll put it like in the, the podcast notes on the link on my website. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I, I think that's important. It's, it's definitely something that I would like to read. Um, yeah. So so I have so ever since. Um, so you 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 retired in what 2015 you said? Yep. And how long have you been doing a podcast now? Uh I've been doing it for several months now, I think. Um trying to think when I've started. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm on episode 12. Actually, I have some some in the queue that I'm getting ready to upload. Like I have one coming out tomorrow. Okay. And so I would say I've already done about 18 episodes, but there's only 12 that are out right now. Okay. Yeah, so so less than a year, pretty much. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a great way to, to kind of, like we were talking about earlier, get, get that message out without having, like, some sort of corporate influence or, 
you know, put put things out in, in this way because we want to make these type of points and statements, uh, you know, like, like all these major media outlets are, you know, nowadays or, or how they've been for years. You know, it's kind of a straight, uh, a little more straight talk, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're hearing the reality of situations from, you know, people's personal experience and you're not hearing it secondhand from somebody else you're you're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth you know right right and it's 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 in so many different ways and different topics you know that that's really kind of an invaluable insight even you know if you're talking about uh whatever mixed martial arts you're talking about uh you know some type of science or you know whatever it is to hear directly from people in those fields without any type of outside influence really I, I think is invaluable um and so if people want to keep up with you any anyone in my audience you know they want to check you out uh, social media whatever uh, where can they go to do all that yeah uh best best place to follow me is uh at daniel barbarian on instagram and i actually have a facebook page as well for that uh but i'm always posting on there when i'm uploading a new podcast and um uh, letting you know when it's available, putting up links for it. And then the, if, if you are a fan of YouTube, I know some people don't like YouTube. I really like it. Um, and you actually want to watch the podcast. My channel is Daniel the barbarian. And I actually do some other, uh, I'm actually starting an off-road racing team. And so there'll be off-road racing videos and people are into that. Uh, I also plan on doing some medical training stuff, teaching, uh, some of the, you know, trauma medicine I know. Uh, and then I actually have a cooking channel. I just made some awesome chicken the other night. So nice. there's, there's, there's just some other stuff on my YouTube channel besides the podcast. Um, for people that are looking to get into the podcast, I would say uh, it's, I have talks about, you know, any, any range of topics. I'm basically looking to have interesting conversations with interesting people. I've talked to a, a former army veteran, uh, woman who's an off-road racer. She's been in the off-road industry for 20 years, you know, and she's from Alaska and does, you know, caribou hunting. So there's everything from that to doing, you know, talk deep talks with my brother about him getting wounded and, uh, you know, our time growing up, uh, we, my brother's into politics. So we, we touch on current events, you know, you know, situation with North Korea and, but then there's also the podcast that I'm doing with um, some buddies of mine started this uh, We the Willing Collective, and that's uh, be expecting some podcasts where I'm talking about you know my reaction to some of their art because they're they're basically making art with meaning, and we've done some podcasts kind of themed on topics like death and dying, and uh, you know the rocking chair test, sort of kind of like. Uh, life principles we've pulled from our life experiences. So right. that's kind of like the, the range if, if people are wondering like what it's about or what, what they'd be getting into. That's that's sort of kind of a basic general idea of, of what it is. Right. And, and, and I, you know, I personally, you know, everybody's interested in different things or into different things, but those kind of topics are, are interesting to me. You know, what, you know, talking about life and death, that's something we all deal with, right? 
or um, you know some of those kind of core principles that guide you uh, as a human being through life, you know, and 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 then your time spent as a warrior, you know, what do you learn from that, you know, in in hindsight? Uh, so it, it's all pretty interesting stuff, and um, you know, can you just once again state the name of your podcast so that people can check it out? Yeah, it's the Danger Zone, and the Danger Zone on one word. It's on SoundCloud and iTunes and YouTube. Awesome. So yeah, it was it was great having you on, man. It was great uh, talking about some of these things. This specifically for me, the the uh, stuff about the brain brain injuries, I, I find it fascinating. And um, yeah. you know, hopefully we can maybe we can have you back on, or we can dive into that uh, specifically. Definitely, I, I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, that's that is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, having been. Uh, sort of coming full circle. I was a, you know, casket bearer initially in the military, burying our brothers and then moving on to being a medic. And so I have kind of a greater understanding of uh, the medicine and kind of what's been going on in my own body and then dealing with the brain injuries themselves. So it's, it's something that I'm pretty passionate about and would, you know, love to talk about further. So. Awesome, man. Well, uh, once again, thank you for coming on and, and thank you for your service. Oh, thank you, man. Thanks for having me.